Saturday has arrived once again, and a question for you. Do you consider this the sixth or the seventh day of the week? The origins of the name Saturday date back to Roman times, 2,000 years ago, and came about during a time when there had been an eight-day week. Would it were that that were the case now, so I, Sean Tubbs, could bring you even more episodes of Charlottesville Community Engagement. It's August 21st. On today's show, a demographer at the Weldon Cooper Center at the University of Virginia is concerned about the accuracy of the 2020 census count for Charlottesville, updates from the Places 29 Hydraulic Community Advisory Committee, Dr. Danny Avula gives a press briefing on planning for booster shots this fall, and the Charlottesville police chief blasts a police group's concerns about her leadership. In today's Substack-fueled shout-out, Code for Charlottesville is seeking volunteers with tech, data, design, and research skills to work on community service projects. Founded in September of 2019, Code for Charlottesville has worked on projects with the Legal Aid Justice Center, the Charlottesville Fire Department, and the Charlottesville Office of Human Rights. Visit the Code for Charlottesville website to learn more. There's a link in the newsletter including details on projects that are underway. In July, the Virginia Department of Health stopped releasing COVID data on the weekends. So today, we'll begin with the seven-day average that was given yesterday of 2,322 cases a day, and the percent positivity increased to 9.1%. There have been 156 deaths from COVID in Virginia since July 21st, As of yesterday, two-thirds of adult Virginians are fully vaccinated, and the seven-day average of new shots per day is 14,581. That's around the same number as last week. The VDH usually updates their dashboard measuring the percentage of new COVID cases by vaccination status on Friday, but that did not occur yesterday. On August 19th, there were over 141,000 new cases nationwide, around the same rate as in mid-November of 2020. The winter surge peaked at around 250,000 cases a day nationwide the week of early January. There is growing concern about the ability of the Delta variant to infect the vaccinated, but also concern that vaccinated individuals who got either the Pfizer or the Moderna mRNA shot may need a booster. Dr. Danny Avula is overseeing the Virginia Department of Health's vaccine programs. Over time, vaccine efficacy starts to decrease. Uh, that vaccine efficacy is still very strong in the hospitalization against hospitalization death, and that uh, we are seeing decreased effectiveness against the Delta variant. This week, the first third shots have been given to immunocompromised individuals. September 20th is the target date set by federal officials for the rollout of booster shots for the general population. That depends on approval from the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices and the overall Centers for Disease Control. But the general parameters of how it would work are becoming known. You will be eligible for a booster shot eight months after your second dose of your mRNA vaccine. The details for those who got the Johnson & Johnson vaccine are not yet known because research is still inconclusive. But Dr. Avula said the CDC hopes a solution will be worked out by September 20th. 
Dr. Avula also said he's been told by federal officials that there will be enough supply. Uh, that the federal government has very much reassured us that supply is not an issue, that there is enough vaccine for a third dose for every American. And, and you know, we just need to remember that that means this will be a very different scenario than what we were working with from December to March. Meanwhile, the Ting Pavilion has joined a growing list of venues that will now require proof of vaccination for admittance. Many restaurants and businesses have begun to require them as well. The summer pandemic surge has put a pause on the preparations for the possibility of in-person public meetings in Albemarle. Emily Kilroy is the county's director of communications and public engagement. We've done all in-person for many years. We've pivoted very quickly to all virtual. Um, but what does it look like, uh, you know, as we return return to normal? Um, and so there's been a lot of work leading up to um, sort of that next phase of public meetings. And um, and that work has sort of been put on hold, just given the um, the CDC's substantial transmission rate that they have uh, uh, labeled Albemarle County as having. Kilroy said there are many in the community who would not feel safe sitting in a closed room with other people. She made her comments at the virtual meeting of the Places 29 Hydraulic Community Advisory Committee, which we'll hear more about in just a moment. A dispute in Charlottesville's police department became more public Friday afternoon when the city of Charlottesville released a statement responding to a letter from the Central Virginia chapter of the Virginia Police Benevolence Association. The August 10th letter from Chapter President Michael Wells stated that Charlottesville police officers have lost confidence in Police Chief Rochelle Brackney due to recent rule changes and policy changes regarding internal investigations and states that they have not been fully explained. The letter states a PBA survey of officers captures the spirit and asks for a meeting with Charlottesville Mayor Nakia Walker and others to remedy the situation. The city's response is in a 14-paragraph unsigned statement, the first paragraph of which announces that members of the city SWAT team have been terminated for alleged behaviors that are described in detail in the ninth and 10th paragraphs. The statement describes steps that Brackney has taken since becoming chief in June of 2018. Chief Brackney was tasked with updating and reforming how police services are provided within the city of Charlottesville, as well as working to bridge a divide between the city's citizens, especially African-American residents, and law enforcement. The statement describes how Brackney is seeking to change a warrior mentality in the police department. The statement cites a video sent to Brackney by a member of the public, which allegedly shows a police corporal making comments captured on a city-owned phone. The video contained profanity and language indicative of the very subculture of aggression that Chief Brackney is committed to eradicating from Charlottesville policing. The statement goes on to give Chief Brackney's account of the disciplinary action that followed and concludes with accusations against the PBA for interfering in the process. For more on the story, read an article in the Daily Progress from reporters Catherine Knott and Allison Rabel. Albemarle County's seven community advisory committees are intended to be monthly forums to help Albemarle staff and elected officials implement the seven areas designated for growth. There are also places where one can learn information about developments that are underway. 
County Planner Michaela Accardi provided an update at this past week's meeting. The first project I'll talk about is the hydraulic in Georgetown office building. The Albemarle Board of Supervisors granted a rezoning for the project back in 2008 to clear the way for offices. The project was dormant for many years, but a site plan was approved last October, and construction on the one-acre site is underway. The applicant is in the process of undergoing utility improvements on the site, so um, you might see some work over there. A new 60,000-square-foot Boys and Girls Club on school property at the Lambs Lane campus is in the planning phases and requires a special use permit to allow for a community center. Accardi said a vote on that permit is currently in deferral, even though the final site plan is under review. This is a little bit of an uh, untraditional, non-traditional approach where um, the site plan is under review. The final site plan is under review because this building can exist on the site as a school use. Groundbreaking is slated for August 28th, according to Jack Jewett District Supervisor Diantha McKeel. Another project that has been deferred is a residential one called Arbor Oaks Towns, in which an applicant is seeking a rezoning for one acre of land on Hydraulic Road from R4 to R15. A community meeting was held in October, but the 14-unit project is on hold indefinitely. One project that is moving forward is the Premier Circle Project, which will see up to 140 units dedicated to households and individuals with very low and extremely low incomes. The Piedmont Housing Alliance, Virginia Supportive Housing, and the Thomas Jefferson Area Coalition for the Homeless are the entities behind the project. The rezoning was approved by the Board of Supervisors, and we haven't had any further plans submitted at this time. There was also an update from Samantha Strong, the manager of Stonefield. The former Pier 1 space is being subdivided into three spaces, one of which will be the first Virginia location of the Torchy's Tacos chain. Um, The middle space is under negotiations. I'm actually expecting before the month is out, we'll have that lease signed. And the third space is also in the early stages of negotiations. Elsewhere in Stonefield, there's a lease signed for another chain eatery called Organic Crush. We're really excited because it's going to bring cold-pressed juices, whole fruit smoothies. It's very all-natural, very healthy, bold, different things like that. Strong said the pandemic has not affected vacancy rates on the retail side of Stonefield. We are very close to being at 100% occupancy, which has not happened at Stonefield before. Strong said the space, formerly occupied by an Italian restaurant, may become an event space, citing a need for such places in the community. You're listening to Charlottesville Community Engagement, and it's time now for another reader-supported announcement. The nonprofit group Resilient Virginia works to inform decision-makers and officials about how to prepare for a changing world. They're holding their annual event virtually this year. The Resilient Recovery Conference will take place the mornings of August 25th, August 26th, and August 27th. Take a look at the details of the event as well as pricing at resilientvirginia.org. Earlier this month, the U.S. Census Bureau released more of the results of the 2020 count, with numbers on population, housing units, and demographics. 
The official Charlottesville population is 46,553, or a 7.1 increase over the 2010 count. Albemarle's official population increased 13.6% to 112,395. The count began on April 1, 2020, after most higher education facilities shut down at the beginning of the pandemic. Each year, the Weldon Cooper Center for Public Service at the University of Virginia produces population estimates for use by the state government to help allocate funds for various programs and government services. Their 2020 estimate for Charlottesville was 49,447, nearly 3,000 more than the official count. Hamilton Lombard is a research specialist at Weldon Cooper who combs through building permits and other sources to come up with the estimates and projections. I spoke with him this week to ask about the discrepancy between the official count and the higher numbers from Weldon Cooper, and about what the census means for localities like Charlottesville and other university towns in Virginia. The census data just came out last Thursday, approximately. Um, It was a little later than usual. Obviously, it was a little bit different of a census count than in years past. Um, Can you just give us some general overviews of what the data is showing us so far this year? Is it, you know, how does it look? Very big picture to Virginia and the U.S. overall. There's been slower growth um, than the past decades. Virginia's seen a, a much sharper slowdown in growth than U.S.'s overall. When you look at the Charlottesville region as a whole, uh, we've had remarkably steady growth decade after decade. Um, this decade really wasn't very different. Uh, where the growth happened shifted a little bit. Uh, first half of the decade, we had fairly strong growth in the city. It seemed to slow down, maybe even slightly reversed in the second half of the decade, just because there was a lot less development going on in the city. We saw a big pickup in growth out in Harbaugh County. And the last few years, more of an acceleration out in Green, Havana, uh, Louisa. Your estimates have shown over the last several years, the Weldon Cooper estimates, well, the estimates and the projections are somewhat out of line and a little bit higher. Uh, I think the last one for 2020 was about 49,000 and change for Charlottesville. The census came in at about 46 and a half, 46, 500, somewhere in there. I don't have it in front of me. That's a bit of a discrepancy. Do you have any explanation for what might be going on there? I think one thing just kind of starting off with context is that we did quite a bit of analysis. We always do this whenever the census count comes out. We want to look at our estimates, see how close they were. Generally speaking, they were very close, which makes me happy. Um, But there are a handful of of counties and cities that really stood out as being far off from the census. Each one of them was, we expected more than the census showed. Each one of them had a group quarters facility, so a college dorm or prison. Charlottesville, you see the same thing. Charlottesville, think was the largest gap between what we ex- we thought the population was in 2020, what the census counted. For Charlottesville and then around the state, you notice that track level numbers in 2020 versus 2010 near universities seem to be where you see most of this difference. So it does appear that I think most college students on campuses were counted correctly, um, but the ones off campus weren't typically. Um, the reason for that is that the census is April 1st. Most colleges shut down because of the pandemic in early March. So the vast majority of college students have left by the time the census has started. In the cases of colleges, the census can contact them and go through 
all the legal privacy protection things they need to do, but get student information from colleges and make sure they're counted where they study, which is where they're supposed to be counted, not where, say, their parents live. With students off campus, it's much harder to do that. The university doesn't necessarily have that information. They don't know if they live in the county or city. They don't know what block they live in. So that data had to be collected by the Census Bureau. If students were around, that was easy. If they could find a neighbor, maybe, of a student and, and say, well, they definitely were there and there are four students, the Census Bureau could use that. But in many cases, they couldn't even get into the apartment building. So unless people within that apartment building responded, they just don't have a correct count. Um, since I'm more familiar with Charlottesville than most college towns in Virginia, I did look a little bit more at Charlottesville. And one example that just stood out to me was that if you look at the, the census block over near the corner that has the Grandmark apartment complex, in 2010, the census counted 796 residents. In 2020, they counted 348. So there are probably multiple cases like that. Um, I, I would expect the problem is primarily in the bigger apartment complexes, um, but it's going to be hard to say. One thing that I looked at this again briefly was that if you look at UVA's enrollment in Charlottesville, um, graduates and undergraduate students, um, I think it went up by about 3,000, 3,400 or so uh, between 2010 and 2020. You look at the city's population growth in the census, and then you look at the amount of homes constructed in the city, there's a gap. It doesn't explain it. I think there's about 2,200 new housing units put in. So it, it seems there's not just a case of the grand mark. It seems like there's a much wider spread undercount. Um, and as I mentioned, you see this in Radford, you see this in Harrisburg, you see this in Lexington, you see this in Blacksburg, uh, you see this in Farmville. You see it pretty much any time you have a college dorm or a prison jail. Let's draw that out a little bit more. You know, it, it really is interesting to see the links, uh, to see both the um, – the population data and the housing units. And I think that both in Albemarle, I think they had something around 5,500 to 6,000 or so new housing units. As you said, about 2,200 units. Is that a trend that's consistent? Like, like, so when you talk about rural areas declining and urban areas picking up population, how important is it to look at the housing data as well as um, the people? Because obviously there could be some empty houses, but I guess it is that figure of new construction important? It, it is, particularly with this census, because this privacy algorithm they applied is applied to total population. So the total population numbers you see should be relatively accurate, but when you're looking at a small geography, it may not be at all. But they did not apply the formula to housing units. The housing units should be quite accurate. Um, we personally spent quite a bit of time through the state and also through the Census Bureau, trying to make sure they had a good enough count as possible of housing units in Virginia. Um, spent some mind-numbing hours and going through 911 addresses to try to make sure these were houses, not you know doghouse. Sometimes you have, literally have a 911 address applied to doghouse. So we spent a lot of time trying to make sure these numbers were right. The Census Bureau spent far more time than we did. So I think those are great numbers, and that is one way of measuring it. You do have, as you mentioned, higher vacancy rates uh, in some rural areas. Um, but generally speaking, if you see growth in housing, that's, that's going to be newer housing, probably going to be occupied. It can be one measurement of growth. 
Can you talk a little bit about some of the uh, like other communities in this area? So, for instance, you mentioned Harrisonburg. So Harrisonburg, you know, which is another place which is another, you know, a similar university. Blacksburg is another one. You know, those three areas, are they enough of a pull to maybe to become sort of a small metropolitan area? How did they fare this year or th- this time around? Harrisonburg, one of the things in Virginia general we've seen the last few decades is that to have growth, you typically need to have at least one or two things. You need to be near Northern Virginia and say like Winchester is or Fredericksburg is, or you need to have a large university slash research hospital. And Charlottesville checks all, all those boxes. Um, Harrisonburg sort of does. It doesn't have the big hospital um, like UVA, but it has a big university, has multiple universities, um, and it's also relatively close to Northern Virginia. So it's seen very similar growth patterns in Charlottesville, um, very, you know, being just steady year on growth, outpacing Virginia as a whole. Um, the sort, same sort of dynamics um, with growth in the city versus the county, though Harrisonburg is a little different just because it didn't do an annexation deal like Charlottesville did, so it was able to annex more of the county before the moratorium came in. So it had, has and, and has had in the past just more area for growth than the city has. Blacksburg is so far from Northern Virginia, it still has the university, check that box. Um, but it, uh, when you look at the surrounding counties, there's a lot of deindustrialization going on, population still shifting out of agriculture, um, a lot of aging going on around Blacksburg. So they sort of balanced out. It's had steady growth, but much slower than Harrisburg or Charlottesville. But when you look at Harrisonburg and Charlottesville specifically, they've really been the same growth rates um, decade after decade. It's a good parallel. Mm-hmm. No, I'm just fascinated because, you know, I think about, I mean, I'm looking ahead at the future of Virginia, especially in terms of the investments that have been made it, or that are being made in rail, for instance. And just, um, you know, and then you have places like Lynchburg, which are which kind of actually where with Lynchburg, I mean, obviously there's no public university, but you do have Liberty, which is uh, grown substantially, at least its physical plant has grown substantially in the last 10 years. What can you say about Lynchburg? I would say probably without Liberty, Lynchburg would be looking a lot more like Danville with slow or no population growth. Um, But with Liberty, it's further from Northern Virginia and Liberty has helped the economy. Uh, it's boosted population just by the growth of its enrollment, but it doesn't, it, it's starting a med school. It doesn't have really a research hospital and Liberty's still not yet a, a major research university. So you don't have this huge ancillary staff like Charlottesville has and to a lesser extent Harrisburg has. It's really driving population growth. So it's probably on course to have, I would assume, steady growth. And, you know, maybe as Liberty evolves, you could see it become Another parallel with Charlottesville, where Harrisonburg is, um, with a lot of rapid growth. Um, but so far, I think Liberty has been able to cancel out the decline you'd see from more people shifting out of manufacturing um, the way you have in Danville. But it's much slower growth. Um, and again, you know, thinking about Virginia General, it's mostly been proximity Northern Virginia drive, drives the amount of growth you have. It's Northern Virginia is really kind of the engine that's driving growth. If you are attracting people from Northern Virginia you're going to grow. Um, But if you're not, you probably aren't growing in Virginia. You know, it's interesting because you guys don't have a crystal ball. And I know that you disclaim pretty much all of your projections and estimates accordingly. But yet, you know, there have been, because I mean, obviously the the census is on a 10-year scale. 
your work will next probably move towards doing the next estimates, I'm guessing, for, for which could come out in January based on July 1st of this year. Um, I want to ask a detailed question about that in a minute, but but obviously we've had a major shift in this last year and we're perhaps still in it with the pandemic. Is it in in all of the work that you do, are you able to detect any trends right now towards um, how the pandemic might be changing things? I mean, anecdotally, we hear a lot that with broadband, some of the rural areas might be a little bit more attractive. Is there anything in the data to back that up just yet? Or maybe not the census data that you just got, but like, is there anything in there so far? Yeah, um, the census data might have captured the very beginnings of it, but I, I don't know. Um, that's harder to say. So we, between censuses, rely on a lot of administrative state data, driver's licenses, um, technical term, fiscally responsible school, where students actually are from, not where they're going to school, public school. Um, but one, one number of other data points, but one other big one we use is uh, building permits from local governments for new residential construction. And we're going to use that to build the next level of estimates. Uh, and those numbers, as we go into the decade, we'll use those estimates to also help as we update our projections. So how we're predicting the future as well. And the key piece of data we use that's going to go behind all that is that building permit data. What we've seen in building permit data before the pandemic, but it seems like at least in 2020, which included the pandemic, was a huge pickup in home construction in smaller metro areas like Charlottesville and to a lesser extent, attractive rural counties, maybe like Nelson is one example, um, but Rockbridge, uh, the Northern Neck. Is that the future? You know, it, it could be. I mean, broadband has been a big difference. I remember very well building permit trends in the 2000s when we had the last housing boom. It looked very similar to what we're seeing right now. Um, I, we also saw an increase in telework then too. Um, you know, we're way higher now than we were then, but I don't know if it's a future or it's kind of just a little bit back to the 2000s. That's harder to say. Um, it does seem though very obvious that when you look at the housing price differences between Northern Virginia, West Virginia, you look at the fact that you have constantly have tens of thousands of people year every year moving out of Northern Virginia, typically moving to areas that have cheaper housing, more outdoor recreation, usually smaller, that with a much larger share of the workforce working remotely, you will see more growth in areas like the Northern Neck, maybe Nelson, than we have seen in previous decades. But things have changed so much, it, it is hard to say. Um, but it does seem to me pretty obvious, and I think that I would say the building permit data we're seeing right now really is just the beginning of that. Well, it's you know it's all fascinating, and I, I I look forward to continuing to talk with you more about this. But just one last question about the census data. So you mentioned I think uh, at the very beginning of this, if the any locality, let's make this general, any locality that might see something in the data that they don't agree with. In general, what's the review process? Is there an appeals process? There's there's a census counter resolution program. Um, I try to stay away from that as far as I can. Um, is mentioned, I would say it, you know, an adjective for it might be Kafkaesque. It's it's very complicated, um, but it is possible. Um, I know that Charlottesville has gone through the pro program before. Um, a handful of county cities have done it. Usually, they were only able to scrape a dozen, two dozen 
more people. And usually it was just because people were counted in the wrong county. They were actually city. Um, but it's possible. It, this, this census is so different, though, than past censuses, and, and the scale of what looks like errors are much larger than I've seen in any recent census. I, I think there's going to be a lot more people challenging it. Um, there's certainly plenty of news articles already about people getting ready to challenge it. Um, so I, I think you can explore the count resolution program. It's really going to come down to if they have good enough data to prove there was an undercount. Well, it's interesting because, you know, I think, you know, there's no, I mean, obviously it's constitutionally mandated. You will count every 10 years. There's not really a process to delay it. And obviously, but is it possible that, well, I mean, I guess the technology is always changing. So I guess you couldn't put like an asterisk next to the census, could you? There, there are some censuses. Um, I think the 1920 census, which don't know if it's a coincidence or not, was conducted right after another pandemic. Um, I and I would want to fact check this. I believe it wasn't used by many states or even maybe possibly federal government for apportionment just because they thought there were so many problems with it. Hmm. Um, the 1870 census, which was conducted when a lot of the country was still rebuilding, uh, there were a lot of question marks around that. I think it turn, it's turning out that actually that wasn't a bad census. It was just the, the next director trying to trash talk the old one. But I think there's definitely going to be asterisks next to the 2020 census no matter what. The problem is, is that for most funding formulas on the federal level, they're going to stick with what they had. Um, we do estimates, and when we do estimates, we're not going to use the Charlottesville number as a base. So we're not going to say the number right in front of me, um, the forty-six five five three. We're not going to build off of that. Yeah, well, that was the de- you know that was the question. If your estimate for twenty twenty or whatever the most recent one was about 49 and change or whatever it was, will you use that number or will you use the 46? I think, I think what it would probably be is we'll go back to our housing units and we'll look at their housing units and our, we built up an estimate as a decade went on to make our estimates using building permit home data. And so I think we'll build off of that. Um, I would expect that the number depending for 2021 will probably be higher than our 2021. I don't think we'll build directly off of our 2020 estimate, but I think it's going to be even higher. Um, the 46 number is clearly wrong. Um, and for state funding, uh, I don't know. We'd have to explore and make sure that we have to be very clear which ones we're going to build off and which ones we're not going to. We can't be arbitrary about it either. So we would have to see. But uh, that number is here so inaccurate. I, I don't know how we could justify using it. Thanks a lot. You know, um, I'm sure we'll be checking in over the months to come because obviously um, the whole point of this program is to talk about these things and to specifically root my journalism in growth and development and all that stuff. So really appreciate uh, the work that you do. And uh, uh, thanks for trying to explain this. Yeah, yeah. There's no problem. That was Hamilton Lombard, a research specialist at the Weldon Cooper Center at the University of Virginia. In 2006, Charlottesville successfully challenged the Census Bureau's 2005 estimates, which showed a decline of around 4,000 people. I've got questions out to the city to see if they plan a dispute this time around. This is a developing story, just like everything on Charlottesville Community Engagement. And that's it for this installment of Charlottesville Community Engagement, a Saturday edition. Lots of information here for you today. Thank you very much for listening. Please uh, do send it on to somebody else. Um, You know, about a tenth of the audience does listen to this thing through the podcast. 
Um, the other 90% read it. Maybe some of you do both, which would be great because then you can tell me what I do differently in each one. To support this program, you've got many different ways. One, you can kick a couple bucks in through Patreon, which would be fantastic, but you can also subscribe through Substack for either $5 a month, $50 a year, or $200 a year. And of course, that will be matched by the company Ting, my sole commercial sponsor. And um, just in exchange, this is what they do. They just match that, which is really fantastic and exciting because it shows that they support independent journalism, which is what this is. Um, there's a lot of information in this community and each and every installment is designed to bring you a little bit of it, whether you're listening to it, reading it, or whatever ways I decide to produce this information in the future. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, we'll be back next time with the Week Ahead newsletter. That is the written one. And for $10 a month in Patreon, you can hear the Week Ahead preview, which is a sonic version of that, uh, which is behind uh, the paywall. Uh, thank you very much, though, for everybody who has done that. And, uh, you know, I want you to go out there or not go out there and stay safe. I'm Sean Tubbs, your host. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.